Hey! It's working. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. As Charlie said, it's mud, surround, contain, and basket. Do good to your servant according to your word, O Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I believe in your commands. For before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Great stuff. Great stuff. We're in uh, Romans 6, verse 9 today, and we're going to read something about prayer here. Preparing your heart for prayer. Oh, God, if in the day of battle I forget thee, do not thou forget me. William King. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for not forgetting us when we sometimes turn away from you. We have, uh, oh, many prayer requests, as always. Obviously, Paul isn't here, so he's he's still... uh, in need of prayer and uh, we have uh, one of our brothers uh, in the congregation here was diagnosed with cancer this week so we need to keep him in prayer got uh, cancer that uh, has spread into another part of his body it's very distressful for all of us so we want to uh, remember that and then uh, you know there are just all kinds of needs out there that come streaming in day after day um I, uh, sometimes we think we have it bad, and I got a letter in the email, I'm sorry, in the mail today, which is something that brought me to tears, and so I emailed the people back, and I'm hoping to hear from them, but the world is not a nice place, it's a cruel place, and i uh, just got to remember that it's Satan that is the ruler of this world, and he will do everything he can to steal our joy, and he'll do everything he can to take away our happiness and uh we but we have a a rock and a firm foundation in christ and so despite people that come against you and that uh want to attack you for one reason or another he is there to uh he's there to guide you and lead you so let's go to him in prayer to the lord and uh, ask him to just take away some of our burdens heavenly father we thank you we thank you so very much for the chance to come into your presence and to boldly enter your throne of grace and there we'll get down on our faces before you and praise you and exalt you for your magnificent glory. You are beyond compare in all that you do, everything that you have planned and everything you have purposed for your people. We trust in it. We have faith in your word and we know that no matter what happens in this world, the trials and the troubles that we face, that you are above them, you are in control of them and you have already promised us something far, far better. How great you are, O Lord, and how great is your word. We thank you for your word, which gives us the comfort and hope that we desperately need in this ever-increasingly wicked world. We would ask that you would help us to treat your word properly, carefully, and to handle it in a way which is not irresponsible, not jumping to unfounded conclusions, but to just stand on the surety of what we do know and not put ourselves into positions where we're speculating about things which we don't know. Help us to be this way so that we bring you honor and glory and not shame in uh, your presence. Lord, we do pray for those people that are struggling and that are having trials in their lives right now. And there are so many of them. The list is long and uh, 
there, there are people all over that uh, email and that let us know their troubles, and we lift each one of them up right now. <laughs> and we ask you just bless this time here. We thank you for John and Kathy having come back once again to join us for a couple of weeks, and we ask that you bless their time here in Sarasota. And uh, Lord, just all glory to you. All glory to you in the highest, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, let's see here. We're in Romans 6, verse 9 today. Back up to eight. <laughs> let's see here. Why don't you back up to 6, verse... Why don't you uh, just read the whole chapter, starting with 1, and then... What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Died to sin. How can we live any longer? But don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Mm-hmm. We were therefore buried with him through baptism to death in that order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live in If we have been united with him like this in his death, we shall certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. But we know that our old selves, self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Okay, even before the comments, we'll back up a little bit and we'll we'll see that. Um, uh, do you know what yes. we had last week? No. Oh yes, you do. I was in New England. Yeah, well, we were having pizza. Oh. <laughs> we know that how is how is your sister doing? How is your sister? She's good. Okay, tell her we said hi. She's happy. Um, Oh boy. Yeah, well, and it's nice up there this time of year. When the winter comes, she's going to want to be back down here again. I know she will. Um, okay, we're going to back up to um, verse 6 really quickly. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. What does it say in Colossians 2.14? That the law was nailed to the cross. His body is, the he embodies the law, it was nailed to the cross. We were crucified with him. And he goes on, he says that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Well, where does sin come from? Comes from violation of what? The law. The law is nailed to the cross, and so we are freed from that. We're no longer slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. We died with Christ, right? That's what he says. So we died with Christ. He died in fulfillment of the law. We died to the law. Therefore, we're not slaves of sin. And then he says, now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, right? He died apart from sin. He was raised because he had no sin, and he says, we are in Christ, we died to sin, and therefore, no matter, just as I was saying, you know, no matter what happens in this body, we are going to die someday if the Lord doesn't come first, we're going to be raised with Christ. There, it, it is impossible that we will stay in the grave, impossible. If this is the word of God, it is impossible that we will stay in the grave, and this is the word of God. So we, no matter what happens in this life with this corruptible body, no matter what happens in the sadness of our days, Christ will raise us to newness of life. So, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. He cannot die ever again. It's appointed for man to die, and then the judgment, okay? Death no longer has dominion over him. It takes us right back to Acts 2, 
where Peter stood up and he said that it was impossible for him to stay in the grave. Impossible. He had no sin. And if you watch that uh, sermon last week, or was it two weeks ago, where about the uh, sin being placed on the, uh, what, I think it was last week. Yeah, absolute zero. Anyway, um, it, it, it was very clearly revealed in there that he bore our sins, but because he was ordained as our high priest, the sin was passed right through him. It could not stick to him. You would call it the, the cosmic Teflon, maybe, but sin could not stick to Christ, okay? And we are in that same position now. We cannot, we cannot stay in the grave. We will come to, back to life no matter what happens in this life. So here's my comments on it. <clears throat> Knowing that, that's Paul's words. Knowing that is used here as an indication of absolute surety based on the words of 6.8, which I just read. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Absolute surety, okay? Christ, in fact, did die in his human body. As I said, there's several uh, uh, heresies that we cannot accept. We, we, as Christians, cannot accept heresies. One of them is that he, the Jehovah's Witness proposed this, that he died in a physical body, but he was raised in a, as a spirit being. Okay, he had to come out of the grave with a physical body to prove that he had defeated death. It's a heresy to say otherwise. There are several heresies. We could go through them really quickly. Um, the uh, the uh, inspiration of Scripture, I would put first and foremost. If this isn't inspired, then we're wasting our time. That's all I can tell you. But the inspiration of Scripture, you have the virgin birth. If Christ wasn't born of a virgin, everything falls apart. Everything. That's a heresy. Um, virgin birth, uh, um, the deity of Christ is one of them. And I may have mentioned these in the last Bible class. I don't know. But if I did, I apologize. Just go through them really quickly. Uh, the deity of Christ, the all-sufficient atonement of Christ. He died for every sin for all people on this planet without exception. There's no sin that cannot be covered by his shed blood, but that doesn't mean everybody is forgiven in Christ. Potentially, that's right. We are all, he is all sufficient for the atonement of sins for people, but actually it's only those who receive him, okay? The all-sufficient atonement of Christ. Um, uh, the, um, the resurrection of Christ, a bodily resurrection. He did not raise as a spirit being. He raised as the same physical body that he died in, okay, and uh, it, he can never die again, and then another one is the return of Christ. He is coming again. That is a heresy. If, if, if Think of it. Now, there's, um, what is it? You've got praetorism, they've got hyperpraetorism, which says that Christ returned in AD 70, okay? Why is it a heresy? Why is hyperpraetorism a heresy? Praetorism isn't. They say that everything in the Bible is fulfilled except Christ is coming again someday, not a heresy, it's just bad interpretation of scripture, but um, uh, hyperpraterism says that he returned in A.D. 70, and that all of scripture is fulfilled. This is all we have. There's been no judgment. <laughs> There's been no judgment, but um, more specifically, we take the Lord's Supper every single Sunday, which says we proclaim his death until he comes, until he comes again. If he's come again, why are we taking the Lord's Supper? Makes no sense. It is a heresy. Hyperpraetorism is an absolute heresy. Praetorism is really bad theology, but you know we wouldn't go so far as a heresy. People will often say, well, that guy's an apostate because he believes in a pre-trib rapture. That's not apostasy. You know what? If somebody believes in a mid-trib or a post-trib rapture, no big deal. They have mishandled scripture. Their doctrine is bad. Bad doctrine will not keep somebody from being saved. Okay, you tell somebody, yeah, there's going to be a rapture someday, and it's going to be post-trib. Does that keep anybody from being saved? No. no. 
those other points that I brought up will keep somebody from being saved. Okay, that is a heresy. And once again, I've said this before, a heretic can actually be a saved person. Yes. But what he teaches the next person, that person will never be saved. That's what a heresy is. So be careful with that. Doctrine does matter. And uh, we want to have no heresies at all. Another one, you know, this is this one could be debated that it's kind of in uh, the all-sufficient atonement of Christ. But what is another heresy? Saying that the law is not fulfilled. Absolutely. So when somebody says that the Feast of Rosh Hashanah is coming, right? Feast of Rosh Hashanah hasn't been fulfilled. The, the spring feasts have been fulfilled and the fall feasts are yet to be fulfilled. It's a heresy. Christ fulfilled the law. Rosh Hashanah is fulfilled. And I'll talk about that very soon. We'll be in Leviticus 23 in a couple of months. And I will explain what it pictures. And then the Day of Atonement. We're going to do that and just, I'll probably be typing it in two more weeks, the Day of Atonement, and then we'll do it in 12 weeks, okay, as a sermon. You will see as clearly as it can be that the Day of Atonement is fulfilled. Well, if the Day of Atonement is fulfilled and that comes after Rosh Hashanah, what does that mean about Rosh Hashanah? It's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. And guess what, Sukkot, Tabernacles, people will say that's not fulfilled. That's picturing something else. No. Just because something is fulfilled doesn't mean that we don't observe it still. And the Feast of Tabernacles will be observed forever. On the last page of the Bible, it says that God is what with man? God now dwells with man. Feast of Tabernacles. That's what it is. To dwell is skeneo in Greek, which comes from the Hebrew word, which is tabernacles, Sukkot. Right? When they translated the Old Testament into Greek, the uh, Septuagint, they used the word skeneo, which is there in the New Testament. It's fulfilled, but we will observe it. Just like my birth is past. Past. It's fulfilled. I was born, right? But I observe it once a year. You know, I have a birthday. Whether birthday. I observe it or not, I have a birthday, I should say. And uh, yeah, so if people need to get their theology right. The law of Moses, everything in the law of Moses is fulfilled. It is done. It is over. There are no feasts that need to be fulfilled because if there are, Christ did not die in fulfillment of the law. It is not an all-sufficient atonement. So you could put it under Christ's death, but it is a part of Christ's death. He died in fulfillment of the law. Paul makes it absolutely abundantly clear. And even in the book of Leviticus, which we've been going through, you see every single Sunday, oh, I understand that now. You understand a little bit more each week why Christ is the fulfillment of this precept. It's done, okay? Those are heresies. We've talked about them. I'll mention them again 15,000 times because you need to repeat. I'll tell you, I, I used to not like repeating things. I just want to say it one time and never again. But I learned from uh, Dr. Geisler. Uh, he died, by the way. Anybody know that? No. Yeah, Norman Geisler died. Um, I wondered why I never got an email back from him. I emailed him. Oh. No, seriously, just recently I emailed him and uh, never got a response, which is unusual. He died. Anyway, um, he's up with the Lord, guaranteed. You know, they're a wonderful guy. But he would say the same thing like 20 times in an hour talk. He would repeat himself, and I'm saying, why does he do that? I've got it. Because people will come up to me the next day and say, what was it Geyser was talking about? And they listen to the same thing I did. And it's because they have not, they got this part, and I got that part, and you can talk about it. But he was very good about repeating himself. So I don't feel as bad about it as I used to, but I still don't like repeating myself. It just... Um, it's not good. Plus, I don't like repeating myself. Um, that was a joke. Uh, anyway. I heard that. Yeah, okay. Uh, let's see here. So um, Christ, in fact, did die in his human body, and he was resurrected in a real physical body. Our faith in this causes us 
to die with him to sin. That's what Paul says. We die to sin when we put our faith in Christ, okay? When we die in this way, the power of sin dies. Everybody got that? The law is what makes sin known to us. If there's no law, you can't sin. Talked about it. If you go down the road and there's no sign, if the, they don't have an established speed limit in the town, you can go as fast as you want. But as soon as they pass that law and you go over that speed limit, you can now be given a ticket. You die to the law, you thus die to sin. That's the way that works, okay? Um, but the event doesn't stop there. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, right? Yes, he died, but he died for sins, not in sins. And there's a giant difference between the two. Because he was sinless, death could not hold him. If you don't understand that, go back and watch last week's sermon. It is so crystal clear, isn't it? Mm -hmm. it yeah, I, I, it's the one, it was last week, absolute yeah. zero. At the end. When, at, when at the very end, is, that's right. Yeah. It is so absolutely clear. If you miss that precept, it's very, very specific in there. Okay, because he was sinless, death could not hold him. In fact, Peter, and I said this a couple minutes ago, explained to the people of Israel that it was impossible for him to be held in the grave. Not possible. It, it, and there's a reason why Peter said that. It's not just something like, oh, it wasn't possible because the Bible said it, right? And I'm just going by what Scripture says. He logically made the deduction. He says right here, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, to God, uh, by God, to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Jews need a what? Sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, I preach Christ crucified. Okay, so Christ gave them the signs that they needed, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands, having crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Why is that? because the wages of sin is death. If you have earned your wages, that is what you get. It says in Leviticus 18, verse 5, the man who does these things of the law shall live by them. And nobody could do them except Christ. He did the things of the law. He earned no wages of death, and therefore death could not hold him. Peter understood that intuitively from knowing the law. That, that was their hope. We're going to do the things of the law and we're going to live. And they kept dying. And the Old Testament is this record of Israel's failure time and time and time again, not to pick on Israel, but to be an example to Israel and to the world of why we need Christ. As it says in uh, Galatians, the law was a tutor or a schoolmaster to take us by the hand and to lead us to Christ. Very tenderly, very gently, put your hand in his hand. He'll take care of you. Okay, that is what it's there for. The law was intended to lead us to Christ. So our faith in his work, our faith, if you have demonstrated faith in the work of Jesus Christ, causes us to die with him. And that doesn't mean his work while alive. That means his work while alive and dead. The work of Jesus Christ, all of his work. You believe in that, you die with him. Because he is sinless, he resurrected. Because we died to sin with him, as it says right in this verse, we have become sinless in him, okay? I may not feel sinless, but I died to the law. The law has no mastery over me. In God's eyes, I am justified before the law. 
I am sinless, okay? That doesn't mean that I can't violate God's standards and, and lose rewards for it, but I am in a completely different economy than I was one second before when I didn't trust in Christ. I have moved from death to life 100%. It is done. Once again, I say it week after week. If you believe in a loss of salvation, you have a very serious problem with theology. You have a serious problem with God's word. You have a problem with God being truthful because he says you have died to the law. It's over. You have been raised to Christ. If you can lose that, then that means you're going to die again. Not physical death. That means your spiritual death. It doesn't happen. You are raised to newness of life. You're given the Holy Spirit. It is a done deal. You cannot lose your salvation. I know that I say that a lot, but it is something that when people have their family member that they know receive Jesus Christ and they, they walk away from the Lord and they go doing something stupid, well, guess what? They will lose their rewards in the process. Franklin Graham, right? He gave Billy a ton of grief, right? He wrote the book Rebel Without a Cause or whatever. He wrote it about himself. He had walked away from the Lord. If he had died, do you think the Lord would have forgotten that he had saved him when he was young? Absolutely not. But that's what, you know, what does it say? Train up your children in the way of the Lord, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Doesn't say when they're teenagers they won't depart from it, right? There, there are people stray away from the, the Lord. It happens. He does not forget. He does not forget his promises to his people. We are faithless. There you go. He is faithful. It doesn't, and hence, Israel's back in the land. Did they deserve that? By any stretch of the imagination, does Israel deserve to be in the land of Israel right now? No, not one of them does. But God is covenant keeping. He guarantees that he will keep his word and he has done it. Anybody that thinks that Israel's there by a mistake has made a giant mistake in their theology once again. They have looked at the Jews as being out because the church is in. And as I said, we'll go through it one of these days on the board, and I'll show you why people could believe that and why they could come to that conclusion. But seeing something darkly means that it, it, blindness in part has come upon Israel. It means that blindness in part has come on the, the opposite side of the mirror, too. The Gentiles didn't know that. Like I said, if the Gentiles knew that it was up to the Jews coming back into the fold and being saved in order for us to be, you know, raptured out of here, that would be all that the church would would have been doing for the past 2,000 years is evangelizing the Jews. That wasn't the plan. plan. That's right. And so there was a need for the church age and people to make wrong assumptions about what the church's place was in the world. But now that Israel is back in the land and we have this understanding of what God is doing, I don't understand how people can continue on in the old thinking, but that's okay. they're, They're brothers and sisters in Christ. And like I always say about R.C. Sproul, some of his doctrine drives me crazy. I told Jim when he goes to see him at a conference one time, please punch him. And then I said, some of his doctrine I love. I said, after that, give him a big hug because that's what you do. You disagree with people on one thing, you love him in another area. That's what happens. It didn't go over well. It didn't go over well. He didn't like the punch, did he? He didn't give the hug afterward. Anyway, um, okay, so, um, it, but yeah, he's, he's a safe guy. He's got some funny ideas about uh, election and predestination and the people of Israel. Guy saved. And, you know, I, I talk about when are you saved, right? He gave a, a talk one time, and it, just think it through for a second. R.C. Sproul said, you know, when I... I was 19 years old, and I gave my life to the Lord, and I, I, uh, I was saved. And he said, my theology is completely different now than 
what was it, 40 or 50 years ago. He's just completely different. Okay, he's this great theologian now. He's got all of this great, you know, understanding of the Bible. He's read it four billion times and he preaches it every week. Well, is he saved now or was he saved back then? If it's theology, is complete. Yeah, exactly. Who's saved back then? That's what happens is you either stagnate and you stay 19-year-old in your theology or you continue to go to Bible studies. You continue to grow. But people say, well, he can't be saved because he's blood. It has nothing to do with it. You give your life to the Lord. It's a done deal. Everything after that point comes into rewards and losses. Everything. All right? And if his the- either he is right about the rapture or I am right about the rapture. He says there isn't going to be one. I do. Right? Okay? So it's one or the other. That means that one of us is in error. And error in doctrine is... Error. I'm thinking of a three-letter word. Sin. You sin against God when you err in your doctrine. Now, it's not a sin as the law is speaking, but you are erring in the presence of God. So one of us is going to lose rewards for our position on the rapture. Why does he think there's going to be a rapture? He doesn't think there's going to be a rapture. Because he thinks the church has replaced Israel. The church is ushering in the kingdom age. They're making it better and better. The world is going to get so good that Christ is going to say, I'm coming back now. That's what they believe. Because that's what they've been taught in their theology for the past... Well, we're heading in the wrong direction, wouldn't you think? Well, yeah, but this is a temporary blip. They'll get it squared away. Yeah, but this is what they believe. So, but it doesn't mean he's not saved. And when people say you're an apostate or you're a heretic, that has nothing to do with it. It's not a salvific issue. It's just an issue that you disagree on, and either he's right or I'm right. And I know which one is correct. So anyway, <laughs> anyway so here we go. Um, let's see here. Uh, our faith in his work causes us to die with him. Okay. Now I said that. Because he is sinless, he resurrected. Because we died to sin with him, we have become sinless in him. In other words, sin no longer has power over us because the power of sin has been nullified. Christ dies no more, and death, as Paul says, no longer has dominion over him. Can't do it, okay? Because we are in Christ, this is our state as well. If we are in Christ and death no longer has mastery over him, then death no longer has mastery over us. That doesn't mean that we aren't going to die physical deaths, because he has ordained a certain amount of time in this dispensation until... The full, that's right, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then there's going to be something called the rapture. And at that point, those people that are alive when the Lord comes will never die, ever. They will never die. They will go straight from being in this life to a glorified body, and they will never die. Because death no longer has mastery over us. God allows death right now for his purposes. We'll all hope that he comes before we die, right? It, it's tiring living in this world and losing people that you love. But if we, if the Lord doesn't come for another 15 or 20 or 1,000 years, that is his business. Mm-hmm. That is not our job. It's just, you know, I had a conversation with somebody about something this past week, and I'll just read you very quickly my opinion on it because it's what the Bible says, and then we'll go on. It's not our job to be speculating. What was the very last thing, the very last thing that the Lord said to his disciples before he resurrected or ascended. I'll see you. Well, you did say that, but the last thing you said. Okay, yes. He said, well, no, I'm not talking about Matthew, because that really wasn't the last thing he said. That was up in the Galilee. Okay, this is... Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. Well, that, oh, yes, what you said there. But right before that, he gave them the last instruction, and then he told them what to do with that. He says, it is not for you to no, no. know 
times or seasons which the Father has put in his authority. He says, don't speculate. Now, he said that. He said that. I didn't say that. That is the Lord's command to us. It is not for you to know, and people will try every single thing in the world to get around that and to make speculations, and that is wrong. Okay, he said, don't do that. It is not for you to know. He says, but you, now that you have that direction, that specific instruction, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Don't worry about the times and seasons. Worry about getting the gospel out. And you go giving the wrong times and seasons to people and it doesn't happen. Credibility. Yeah. Credibility. Yeah, we got a lot of problems with that lately. Okay, our uh, uh, death no longer has dominion over him. Because we're in Christ, this is our state as well, death no longer has dominion over us. When Christ returns, as I said, we shall be resurrected. This is as sure as the resurrection of Christ himself. It is a 100% guarantee and it should be the hope of all of the faithful. It should be the hope of every one of us. As Paul writes, this is our blessed hope, Christ Jesus. I mean, why would we worship a God that wasn't going to resurrect us? Why would we do that? You know what? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, right? It, it makes no sense. I was watching a special by William Shatner uh, uh, over the past couple days. A one-hour program takes me about four days to get through in a three-hour movie, which I watched a couple weeks ago. It took me almost a week and a half to get through. So I watch a couple minutes of TV a day. But this this show with William Shatner was him trying to find the ultimate answers to everything. And he, he interviewed specialists in every discipline. And he, he also interviewed people that were affected by Star Trek and that went on to do something with their life because of that. You know, people that got on spaceships and flew to the moon or whatever. You know, he just talked to all these different people. And he ended it with Stephen Hawking oh, over at Cambridge. Oh, and i got to tell you, you want to talk about ending on a completely, oh. completely terrible note. It was the most depressing thing that I think of. He says, what do you think? Are, are we going to be able to cure death someday? He says, if you would come 130 years later, could we cure death? And he says, it'll never happen. This is Stephen Hawking. And I thought, what a miserable existence these people have, yeah. that they have absolutely no hope at all. No hope. And Stephen Hawking says, we're just, you know, we came from the, the dust and we're going to go back to it, basically. And, you know, it was just, a, it was it was the most depressing. William Shatner, you can tell he really wants to live. He does not want to die. He's one of the last holdouts of all of them. They've all punched their ticket, except for him and one or two others. And when Stephen Hawking said that, his face just went... Oh. It, 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 you, watch, if you watch that, it's on Netflix. It was so depressing watching that. I can't we, don't, we don't have that. We have an absolute assurance in Christ. And it's I, funny I, that uh, Hawkins, who believes none of that, uses the terminology... Oh, yeah. Genesis. Well, we all came from the dust. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, I, I said that. He okay. didn't actually use that term. Now, he said something like we're all stellar dust or something, you know, whatever. Oh, right? yeah. Even crazier. Even, yeah, even crazier. <laughs> but it, it just, the, the entire thing was just, it ended depressing. And I thought, I, I said to Hedica, I'm so glad we know Jesus, right. you know? I'd love to see that guy walking down the beach someday, you know, and say, can I tell you about Jesus? Can yeah. I just, you know, yeah. maybe I can give you some hope because I saw your face in that and it was yeah. just depressing. Anyway. Um, 100% guarantee, life application. Because we have died to sin in Christ, let us endeavor to live apart from sin in Christ. Everybody got that? We have died to sin in Christ, let us live apart from sin in Christ. Can we help you, ma'am? <laughs> yeah, that's my beautiful wife. 
showing up on time again. Um, yeah, just so you all know, there are mangoes. Please take mangoes. If you don't know this, don't leave them in a plastic bag when you leave. Take all the mangoes you want. Make sure that John and um, Kathy take all they want because they're visiting. And uh, But don't want to take any mangoes home. I've got thousands more to bring in on Sunday. I took, I took in two bags that were so heavy I could hardly carry them into the bank. Uh, this afternoon, I put them up on the counter, and then they're like, "Oh, thank you." I'm like, "No, thank you." Oh, we got our whole garage is stacked with mangoes. I mean, like oh, six man. feet high, and oh, this was a bumper year. This oh yeah, it was great. It, it happens, you know. Some years you don't get any because they go into a, a cycle of rest. Okay. But this is this is one of those years where, and some of them are like as big as somebody's really? head. Oh, they're they're massive. Oh, whopping, whopping mangoes. Yeah. But anyway. Um, yeah, okay, 610, please. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Man, what wonderful words. Mm -hmm. I mean, wonderful words. If you trust that this is the word of God, if you believe that it's the word of God, what a wonderful verse. Verse 610. Paul has been speaking throughout this chapter of our uniting with Christ. He uses the term in Christ like seven jillion times. Maybe not that many, but it's quite a, quite a large number, right? We're united with Christ, and thus sin no longer has mastery over us. Doesn't. Okay? That doesn't mean that we don't do things which are considered sinful before God. But it has no mastery over us. It has no authority over us. We are completely free from that in Christ. Okay, in verse 6, 9, he stated, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. This is the reason, then, for his use of the word for. Because of this, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. That's why he's saying for, okay? If Christ died to sin, meaning for our sins, Paul is speaking of his death as a substitution for our sins because it is evident that he was sinless, right? So he's speaking of what we would call vicarious or in place of substitutionary. Somebody dies in place of somebody else. All of this is pictured in Leviticus. Like I said, we have, we've gone through all of the sacrifices so far up through chapter 9, and there were dozens of them. You've got the grain offering, and you've got the burnt offering, and you've got the sin offering, and the trespass offering, and, and your eyes glaze over thinking about it. But when you were hearing those sermons, it was making sense, wasn't it? This is dying in my place. This is being offered as this in my place. This is representing this in me because of Christ. All of these things we're picturing, and I will say this in a couple of the sermons coming up, but all of these things, all of these offerings that we are looking at happen at one time, at one second in our life by faith. We put our faith in Christ and it is all done. All of those offerings are done at one time and yet they are given to us in a order in the book of Leviticus. You're going to offer this and then you're going to offer this and then this is done by the priest. All of this is done, right? And then it says that like in leprosy, for example, and then he is cleansed, right? All of those things happen immediately in Christ, everything. But all of those things happen in Christ. None of them are excluded. What he did for us encompasses everything that we see. And that's the amazing thing about it, is that we can say, well, he was our, you know, our grain offering. No, he was, he was everything at once. And God is just simply showing us in these Old Testament examples of what Christ did for us so that we can, if we're willing to take the time and look at them, we can say, I see, he did this and he did this and he did this and he did this and it happened by 
one defining thing in my life. I received Jesus Christ. I want him to cover my sins. All of those things that we see are done in one second or less than a second. They're done the second, the, the instant that our, uh, we make that assertion that Christ is our Lord. And it, it's an amazing thing which he has done, okay? So he's speaking of his death as a substitution for our sins. The bull comes in, we put our hands on it, cut the neck, the blood bleeds out. That's one of the things. He's our substitution, okay? Um, uh, he died once for all. The clear intent of this is that sin is dead in us because of his work, and therefore death is dead for us because the wages of sin is death. Let me read that again. His work, um, uh, the intent of this is that sin is dead in us because of his work, and therefore death is dead for us because the wages of sin is death. He died for us, and therefore we cannot die again. That doesn't mean physically in this body. Okay, he's speaking about our spiritual regeneration, which someday will be united to a glorified body, and then we'll have the both of them. Okay, but it is done. It is once for all. All right, once again, eternal salvation right there, if you just logically think it through. Okay, this is the state that we are now in when we receive his work. But, Paul says, the life that he lives, he lives to God. The use of but is now given to show us a contrast, right? That's why we use the word but. I'm going to the store, but I'm not going to spend a lot of money. The contrast is that my wife expects me to go to the store, and because I didn't eat food before going there, I'm going to come back with 4,000 things that we don't need. That's why she does the shopping. But I use the word but, Hidako. I am going there, and I'm. but you know what I did do? I went to the store to get one thing today, oh, and they had olives on sale, and I love olives, so I bought maybe 5,000 olives. But, yeah, so I didn't really do it today. Mistake. Anyway. Yeah, mistake. Don't ever send me to the store, but I had to do it, so I had to go pick something up. So um, anyway, yeah, I'm not the person ever to send to the store. But okay, the contrast is, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The use of but shows us this contract. contrast. Yes, Jesus died to sin once for all, but now that this has happened, will he die for sin again? No, it is once for all. Therefore, he lives in a state where death can never enter again. And in this state, he lives to God, Paul says. The obvious connection Paul is making is that as he died to sin for us, and he is now living for God, to God, that we should also likewise be living to God, right? That's the implication that Paul's trying to make for us. Paul's thoughts are not random, and they are not disconnected. They all are being tied together to show us our state in Christ and therefore how we should conduct ourselves in Christ. That's why when we do wrong, we talked about it last week, do we have to confess our sins? Well, technically, no. God knows them, and they're already covered by the blood of Christ, but I know that I did wrong, Lord, and I talked to the Lord all day long. I was talking to somebody. She she emailed me this morning. Actually, she emailed about 3 o'clock last night, and uh, uh, one of those people that must never sleep, and please pray for me. I won't say who it is. doesn't matter. And so I woke up first thing I did. Man, I, I usually don't answer emails, before, but I, I saw, you know, you can see the first couple words of a uh, uh, email when you look at it. And so I went back and I said, yes, I'll pray for it. If there's something I can help with, I will. You know what she wanted prayer for? I want to be able to pray better. I want to be able to pray like you do, you know, when I pray in the pulpit. And I said, well... First, I asked, what type of prayer? Are you talking about my morning prayer that I type, or are you talking about the prayers that... And she said, well, 
you know, I want to be able to pray properly out loud. She says, but what got me was, she says, I just talk to the Lord all day long. It's not really a prayer. And I said, that's all I do all day long, and it is a prayer. All day. I'm so happy to know there's people out there that do that, that are living in God so closely that they're talking to him. And people must think I'm nuts when I'm taking out the garbage because I'm talking to the Lord like, you know, oh, and I find a, a, a dollar bill in the bottom of the garbage. I'm like, woohoo, thank you, Lord. You know, but I, I, I told her that the way to learn to pray, because if some of you want to know that the answer to this, because maybe some of you here don't know how to pray out loud. Is to pray out loud because eventually you'll get it. We in the example I gave her is we go down to the projects every Saturday, and we have people that go with us, and they've never said a prayer in public before, and their words come out, and they're there. They don't know what to say, and it's difficult. And the second time they start speaking a little better, and the third time, and after a while, she said, "Well, I, I just don't know how to do that." And I said, "Well, when you're with your friend, and something happens, something good, just stop and say, let's pray about it. Just do it." Oh, she was so thankful, right? I got a little smiley face or something back. You know, it, it, that all you need to do if you want to learn to pray is to pray because you learn by doing, all right? I don't think there's anybody, there may be somebody that is a natural at prayer, but I don't know that. I think it's just the more that you do it, the more comfortable you are with it and things start developing in your mind. Uh, it, it just, it does. So just if you're one of those people that wants to pray, but you don't know how to pray, then pray, Okay. Paul's thoughts are not random. They're not disconnected. All right. They're being tied together to show us our state in Christ and how we should conduct ourselves in Christ. The next verse that we're going to look at explicitly states this. Each step of Paul's thoughts progress towards an ultimate goal, which is to teach us of the work of Christ and how it then relates to the believer in Christ. Life application here. Christ died to sin for all. Therefore, we are dead to sin. Everybody's got that, right? We are in Christ. He died. The law is on the cross. That is his body. He's the fulfillment of it. He died. The law is done. It is annulled. It is finished. All right? I know I shouldn't. Uh, I read them before uh, uh, the sermon on Sunday, and I will just tell you right now what they are, but I'm going to do that again this Sunday. I'm going to make sure that I have these verses drummed into your head. The first one is Romans. Do you remember which one it was? I said, come on, I even gave you a clue as to how to remember it. 10-4, that's right, yeah. 10-4, that's right. So 10-4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end of the law, okay? We'll be there in a few weeks. We'll be there, to, yeah, probably by the end, maybe we've still got 45 minutes, we might get there today. And then uh, Colossians 2-14, right? Having taken away the law, it having been nailed to the cross with his body. Okay, I said that one. Let me read it to you now, 2.14. Having wiped out, that means the law, wiped out the handwriting that was against us. The handwriting is the law. Moses' hand is taking down the law. It's explicit in the Bible. Okay, said that last week. Wiped out the requirements that was against us and was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way and having nailed it to the cross. Christ was hanging on the cross, and he says, that is the law. He embodies the law. It's done, okay? And then I'm going to read these again Sunday. I know you're going to get tired of it, but I don't want anybody to forget these verses. Hebrews 7, 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, and the priesthood was changed, right? It went from Aaron to who? No, 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 it didn't go to Eliezer. It went from Aaron to who? Christ, the law. No, not the son. Yeah, you're, he's thinking genealogy. We're talking a whole change. For the priesthood being changed, who went from Aaron to Jesus, of necessity, there is also a change of the law. 
one law is done, another one very explicit. Hebrews 7.18, for on the one hand, there is an annulling, annulling of the former commandment, meaning the law of Moses, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Done. All right? And then we're going to go on to 8. 8.13, in that he says, a new covenant, which it says even in the old covenant that there's a new covenant coming, right, Jeremiah? Okay? In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. That's right. Old, some translations say. It is obsolete. Nullified. Done. It is gone. Okay? And then one more. We'll go to uh, Hebrews 10, verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, speaking of Jesus. Right? He takes away the first. Very good. That he may establish the second. Very good. Burke has got his Bible memorized. He gets the golden star. I'm telling you, just amazing. What a, I have to actually turn to that every time. Or I just I, I, I just don't get it. Very good. Um, okay. You're, oh, you're, you're picking your fingernails. Well, gosh, I was like, <laughs> what are you doing? No, he's just over here playing with his pen or something. I don't know. 611. In the same way, <laughs> count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, this one's a little different. Not much. Likewise, you also, as he just said about Christ, yeah. likewise, you also, Christ, right? Likewise, us, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Christ Jesus our Lord. We are dead to sin. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Because we are re we are dead to sin, because the law is canceled in Christ and we are in Christ, we ought to act like it. That's what he's telling us, okay? So, uh, I'll be alive to God in Jesus our Lord. Verse 611, Paul's use of likewise is to show us that what has been presented, which he just presented, is now what is expected Let's take just a moment, and I'm going to read them to you, 6, 8 through 6, 10. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Great news. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And then verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. That's what we are to take and to understand, our likewise, and thus what is anticipated for us. This is what God is anticipating for us. Not everybody meets this requirement in the same measure. Some people hardly meet it at all. Some people are very good. They, you know, they, they live very good lives, but everybody's on a different plane, but we are all positionally in the exact same place. Every one of us is in the same place. We are dead to sin. We are in Christ, okay? But how we demonstrate it is completely different in all of us. Because of this beautiful train of thought, which he has just pre presented to us, which reveals what occurred in Christ, and because it occurred in us, because we are in Christ when we received him, then the instruction is to reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Here is a simple-to-follow format. Okay, I'm going to give you four points. One, we died with Christ. Two, death no longer has dominion over him. Three, his death that he died was to sin once for all. And four, therefore, we died to sin. Now let us reckon it as so. Okay, very simple. This is the logical progression that Paul is showing us. The law by which sin is known to be sin is fulfilled in Christ. The law of Moses shows us our sin. It's how we know that we are sinning. It's fulfilled in him. It was nailed to the tree in his body. I just read you that. That's Colossians 2.14. Therefore, because the law no longer has power over us, we are free 
from the law, and we can now live to God, just as Christ lives to God. But more specifically, we are alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once again, we're in Christ. We have moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. I talked to somebody about Jesus just this morning at 7-Eleven. I was going to do it yesterday. I'm out blowing off the parking lot, right? And I'm, it takes me about an hour and a half to get around there. And I said, I'm going to talk to that guy today. There's, I'm going to tell you the natural state of people so that if you ever do this to me, you'll be on my bad list. I work out there, and I've got all these leaves, and I'm blowing out into the, the drainage ditch, which I'll mow up on um, tomorrow. It's Friday. So I'll mow them all up, and they'll all be gone, right? But in the meantime, I've got all this mess, and I'm blowing it. And this, I, this I'm going to show you this so you understand what's going on. And it all deals with this guy that I'm talking to. This is why, this was my introduction to talking to him about Jesus. Here's the mall. It's real long, right? This is the parking lot. The mall is right here. This is the parking lot. And you got all this junk that's people throwing junk, their sleeves, all this stuff. And this is the parking lot. You got parking here, right? And you got parking here. And so I have to get all this junk down to here, which is the drainage ditch. Like I say, I'll mow that tomorrow and it'll all look beautiful again. All right. But I got all this stuff up here and I got all this stuff from inside the mall and it's just a mess. And so I'm, then when it rains, it's even more of a mess. It's just, it's gross. Isn't it, Tom? You, Tom knows all about that. So uh, anyway, I'm getting all this. Now, I've got all this done, right? And I just walk one end to the other, and I, it's like 25 miles of walking by the time I'm done. It, it, you know. Anyway, I, I'm blowing it this way, okay, right? Now, all this is clear. It's all done, yeah. right? And I, I'm doing on my last one, and I'm coming this way, and I've got a big pile of leaves right here, right? Where do you think people are at 7-Eleven? And this is all full. Where do you think that they go park? Not in your leaves. Right on top of my pile, seeing that I'm coming. And this happens all the time. People will, I think it's purposeful, okay? One guy comes every single day and he's got a trailer. And he will wait and he will park where I am not blowing leaves. And he's very conscientious about it. Maybe one out of 500 people will do this. Most people they, they, they drive right to where you're working. If I'm doing right here, they will come right there and they'll park right there. It, it is astonishing. What it's do you like, do when they do that? I do this to them and then I walk down and I just, I'm like, really? You know, I just, it, it's frustrating. I mean, human beings are really frustrating. Okay, so, but the point is, he's very gracious about this. You know what? I, I don't know why. He just. Oh, so this guy is very nice about it. Yeah, he he, always. And okay. so, and he always goes to 7 Eleven. And okay. when he gets out, he's always saying, hey, you know, he's just this friendly guy. Don't know him from a hole in the wall, but I see him every single morning of my life. He knows I'm working there. And so finally, I said, I'm going to talk to him about Jesus today. Okay. And I've got the perfect opportunity. He's there. I'm coming this way. When he passes by, I'm just going to turn off my. He was on the phone. Oh. And he's like, what can I do for? I said, no, this is going to take a couple minutes. And he says, no, it's okay. I said, no, I need your attention. So I waited till this morning. But my shoe-in to talk to him about Jesus was, I want to let you know how much I appreciate what you do. And he says, I just see you're working, and I know that you need to get done. And he says, I always try to do that. And I says, I, I know that's wonderful. And I said, now i got a question for you. Do you believe in God? And he says, yes. And I says, why should the Lord let you into heaven? Because he's doing something nice. He's doing a work, right? He's thinking, I, I'm a good guy. I'm doing great stuff for this guy. He's going to say, thank you. You've done something good for me. And and I said, you know, that, that means nothing. I told him about Jesus. And so it's up to him whether he accepts it or not. He says, oh, my wife's a Bible teacher, and, you know, I don't know much about it. And I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm telling him, it's Jesus. It's not God in general. It's not, you know, 
it's Jesus. And I, I think he probably processed it, but he's one of these guys who's very quiet, and obviously he's got this nice demeanor, but that is not going to get him to heaven. But look for an opportunity to talk to somebody. Look for something that will get your foot in the door, right? And that brings us back to where we are right now. We're in, uh, what, first, uh, uh, we're still in 11. Okay, so Paul is telling us these things, and I wanted to give that to you as, as an example so it would get into here. God has done this in Christ. Uh, let me go back. I'm going to read this again. The law by which sin is known to be sin is fulfilled in Christ. It was nailed to the tree in his body. Therefore, because the law has no power over us, we are free from the law and can now live to God just as Christ lives to God. I know I've said this. I'm just from Here's the point. But more specifically, we are alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. And that is what I took the time to explain to him this morning. Is First, I needed to have something to talk to him about. Thank you for doing this. And then I explained to him. And I said, do you have any children? And he, I said, did you have to teach him to do wrong? Well, no, I didn't. I said, you had to teach him to do right, right? He says, yes, I did. It's in us. And I explained that we are in Adam. And the whole point of what I was telling you about this was to get to this concept, is we are, as human beings, in our first father. We're in there, and I said this a couple weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago. We are in there potentially. We're in there seminally. We're in there legally. We are in our first father, and there's nothing we can do about it. Nothing. It will never change but Christ. Christ made it possible to get away from that body of death. And that is what you need to tell people. You need to get them to understand that all of the good works in Adam are still just nothing. They don't mean anything to God. So we are going from being in Adam to being in Christ. The move is complete, and therefore we are no longer bound by the sin nature. If he receives Jesus Christ as his Lord, he will be free from the sin nature. If not, he's going to stay in Adam. And he had that perfectly explained to him. And he understood everything. I mean, you know, but like say, some people are so so ready to accept Jesus that you almost, like, let me just stop talking. Let me receive him right now. And some people you never know. They just are very quiet. And, you know, one guy I talked to the Lord one time, kind of like him, very quiet, wonderful guy. I'm telling you, I worked with him. And I talked to him about the Lord. He's, uh, we had different general managers. I was in charge of the wastewater operations. Uh, he was in charge of another operation. And anyway, I talked to him. Not a word from this guy. And it was like a year later, I found that he'd been going to church his whole, and maybe it wasn't that long, but his whole life had been changed. And I had no idea. Wow. He was just, he was just on fire for the Lord. Wow. You just don't know. Some people just don't want to express it to you. Maybe they think that, yeah, I don't know what. Anyway, uh, and I see him now on Facebook quite often, and we still talk. You know, sometimes I go see him, and uh, not as much as I should, but uh, wonderful, wonderful guy. But I really didn't realize that he had made that, and maybe it was less than that. Maybe it was a month. It was just one of those things that I thought there was no effect at all. And what he told me is he said, I went home, and I couldn't stop thinking about what you said. And it just, he, it, some people just have to grind on it. Whatever. Anyway. At least um, you found out, Charlie. What? At least you did. Oh, yeah. Well, we're in the same business. Eventually, like, we're going to. I've talked to people, and it's like. You never know. You ne well, we'll all know in glory every person well, that made yeah. the commitment. I just remember speaking to somebody, and he told me he was going to come into church on Sunday when we lived on the other coast. And that Sunday, I was just so hopeful. And they don't come. I kept looking. Yeah. And I kept looking, and he never came. Never came. Yeah. Like, yeah. When people say, I'll see you at church. But you yeah. planted the seed. Yeah, I know. That's right. The seed is planted. You just never know. That's right. So, okay, the move is complete. We're no longer bound to the sin nature. The amazing beauty of what God has done in Christ 
is not to be underestimated. The plan which was conceived in the mind of, mind of God before the very foundation of the world is revealed in the person of Jesus. Nothing is missed, nothing has been forgotten, nothing has been overlooked. It is perfect in how it deals with our sin. Perfect, and we've seen this in Leviticus. It is absolutely perfect. If there is a question about could this be a problem, Leviticus answers it. As a matter of fact, Burke sent me something a day ago on Leviticus, just a short little synopsis. Somebody had probably a commentary on the book, and it was just the, the front page of it. And uh, they they uh, made some great points. I'll include a couple of them in a sermon to come up, I think, next week's. Anyway, just real short little points. But um, uh, it, it just it is the most wonderful book. If you just look at Leviticus, and then you pass through the book of Romans, and you get to the book of Hebrews, it all ties together, doesn't it? Hebrews and Leviticus are like, they're, they're necessary to understand together. They really are. You can read Hebrews, and you can say, well, I get that. But when you know Leviticus, then you say, I get that. It's just a completely different level. Same audience. Oh, same audience, same concepts. Everything is being drawn into one. But uh, without getting too far ahead, because um, we'll be in uh, Hebrews very soon, but what would you say is the main, I know you know this, what would be the main theme of the book of Hebrews? Two words. Jesus Christ. No. Greater than. Greater than. Oh, perfect. Greater than. Yes, Jesus Christ, but greater than. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than the law. He's greater everything. He's greater than. Absolutely. That is the main theme of the book of everything is Jesus, but there's there's usually one little key to a book. It's greater than for Hebrews. It, it that the author of it, which I'm certain is Paul, perfectly breaks down every detail of what Christ did, which is greater than what he lived under and what he saw and what he knew because he's the fulfillment of it all okay we don't want to underestimate this everything about what he has done is perfect and how it deals with our sin inherited sin and committed sin we're in Adam that's inherited sin we commit sin it deals with everything what Christ has done and it is complete in and of itself there is nothing everybody needs to remember this and I'm not talking to just you in general I'm talking about everybody there is nothing that we can add to it. And there is nothing that can cause us to lose what transpires when we accept it. Nothing we can add to it. There's nothing you can say, I will help Jesus out a little bit because, you know, this this thing about, I'm not going to eat. Uh, who was it? Who was it? Was it somebody in here had questions about the Seventh-day Adventist this week? No, okay. Yeah. Well, did I talk about that last we week? Talked about something. You did. I don't know. Okay, anyway, somebody emailed me with the, the Seventh-day Adventist questions, and I got to tell you, go to their website. They've dropped off most of Ellen G. White. Yeah, you but, did say Oh, that. so I brought that up last week. Okay, yeah. now I won't worry about it today, but I'm going to tell you what. A little bit of doing this, and a little bit of doing this on every single page, and they've got like 30 pages. Pretty soon you've got a giant legalistic system built up, a giant one. And that's just what they tell you on their opening page, Right. That's not there. Come into church and you got to give up this and this and this and this. Aren't they vegetarian? Uh, yeah, I I, so. yeah. Yeah, uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna help Christ out a little bit because what he did wasn't sufficient. That's right. Okay, so that's he, what that he is. He needs our help. He needs our help, right? The insufficiency of Christ is the doctrine of so many churches. Okay, life application. God has sent His Son into the world to accomplish for us the victory over sin that we need in order to be reconciled to Him. God has done it. He has done it through his son. How could we add to what he has done? 
Right? Just think it through. How could we presume that his work is somehow deficient or insufficient to either save us or to keep us from being saved or keep us being saved? In other words, eternal salvation. Have faith that God is fully capable of accomplishing your salvation from the very beginning to the very end. Nothing you need to do in order to be justified. When you receive Jesus, just think of the word justified. It is done. It is complete, and it is all sufficient. Everything after that is not to merit your salvation. It is in order to be pleasing to God, to earn rewards. Whatever your goal there is, that is on the other side of the cross. The cross is all sufficient. Okay? 6.12. 6.12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Okay, that's pretty close. This one says in its lusts, but yeah, same thing. Okay, evil desires, lusts. Therefore, therefore is given to sum up every single thing that Paul has said from 6.1 through 6.11. We've already read them twice today. So because of everything which has been evaluated, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That is the most common thing in the world in churches today is letting sin reign in your mortal body. Uh, just a day ago, might have been yesterday or the day before, the guy that wrote the Message Bible, which I've never read, I have no desire to read, but he wrote the Message Bible. He is convinced that being a homosexual is okay, being a lesbian what? is okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just crazy. It's um, Presbyterian. He's letting sin reign in his mortal body. Whether he's actively doing it or whether he's condoning it in somebody else, it is exactly what Paul is saying. Is it? You can be in Christ, and you can let sin reign in your mortal body. He's saying it's it's acceptable, and just read the article. Just type it in, and, and it, you'll find it online. It's crazy, all right? Paul couldn't be clearer about that, and the rest of the New Testament couldn't be clearer about it either. Okay, so do not let sin reign in your mortal body. If sin weren't possible, this statement couldn't even be made, right? It couldn't be made. Thus, it was noted in 6-7 that Paul had been speaking about sin's penalty power and presence the penalty of sin has been completely dealt with the power of sin is an ongoing process anybody think that they're above that process right now i got my hand behind me i guarantee let me go thing and tie it there because i will never raise that hand all right it is an ongoing process which requires action on our part as is noted right now in paul's words and the presence of sin will be completely removed when we are glorified. Completely. We can only go in one direction at a time, north or south, for example, and the same is true concerning our sinful nature. We can either please it and head towards the direction of having sin reign in us, or we can crucify it and have it die in us. There's a term that uh, Protestant theologians use for that. More beginning begins with M. No, ends with mortifying. Mortifying. That's right. Very good. Yeah. That's mortifying sin in your body. Okay. That's that's the, the term you want to use there. Is uh, you want to have you don't want to have sin reign in you, you want to have it crucified in you. You want to mortify the sinful flesh. When admonishing us to not let it reign in us, Paul uses the term mortal body. The reason for this should be obvious. We are not glorified yet. And we are not free from either sin's ability to work in us, nor from sin to completely reign in us once again. It can happen. Just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and read it. I say it week after week. It's about this long. Take you 10 seconds to get through it. It can happen. Two saved believers. Paul never questions that guy's salvation. In fact, he does exactly the opposite. 
Let's go there. Let's just do it because I bring it up so often and it's such a simple, I don't know how people can get this wrong. What, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If I said two, I meant one. Um, 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. It's so bad that even the Gentiles would be appalled that a man has his father's wife. The assumption here is that his father had died and he's now sleeping with his father's wife. But it could be that his father is still alive and he's, you know, one way or another, it is something that even the Gentiles would say, this is just wrong, okay? And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you? For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you were gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Never questions the guy's salvation. Not an instance. He says, just get him out of your congregation. Let him do what he's going to do. His flesh is going to be destroyed. As I say to people, what is he talking about? If you were an alcoholic and you start drinking again, right, what's going to happen? That's right. Your liver's going to go. Destruction of the flesh. You'll be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. But get that person out of the congregation because it is going to become an infection. If you're a pothead and you keep smoking pot, eventually you're going to lose whatever sense you have. I, I, oh, I won't say it now because that's coming up in a future Prophecy Update, but it might be this week. I, maybe it's next week. Anyway, um, it, 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 well, I, I don't want to give stuff away that's interesting like this, but um, the, the, the ramifications of smoking pot can actually be a little deeper than people, you know, it's only pot. Anyway, um, and I'm not... You read that? How did you read that? Maybe I said it to you. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, um, so the, the point is, if you have this particular sin, right... You have a pension for going out and sleeping with other people's wives. You also have the probability of being shot, right? There you go. This is what happens when you get into sin. Sin always has consequences, always. So he says, send him out for the destruction of flesh that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, if you allow this in your congregation, the entire congregation is going to turn into a pagan party okay and people will never come in and be saved it will never happen but he doesn't question their salvation in the process he says therefore purge out the old leaven a picture of the feast of unleavened bread okay we went through that back in the book of exodus that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened what did he just say there you are unleavened he doesn't say that you've got leaven in you and you're not leavened anymore he says you are unleavened act like it Once again, eternal salvation is all over this passage, all over it. You truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. It's done. You are free from the body of death. Live like it. That's what he's telling them to do. All right? He goes on, therefore, let us keep the feast. What feast is he talking about? Passover. Passover and unleavened bread. Keep the feast. The Passover is done. We are in Christ. Let us keep the feast of unleavened bread acting out the unleavened bread which was pictured back in the book of Leviticus and which we'll get, I'm sorry, Exodus and which we'll get to again in Leviticus. Okay? So, therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven 
nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. All of the Old Testament were types and pictures, all of it. If it's not fulfilled, then the Christ, then the law is still in effect, and Christ did not die in fulfillment of the law. Once again, a heresy. Keep thinking of the symbolism. It is done. Everything in the Old Testament is done. The law is nailed to the cross, okay? He said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world. This is one thing that people don't seem to get. Who did Jesus go to? Sinners. The sinners. That's right. And he says right there, I'm not telling you not to hang out with them because that's their natural way. That is, you'd have to, he says right here, you'll have to, since you would have to go out of the world. There's nothing wrong with hanging out with your old friends. They're having a party go, right? He never questions that in anybody. We are to be a light to those people. Not to say I'm not going to hang around with you, but he says here, but now I have written you to not keep company with anyone named a brother. Once again, he never questions their salvation. They're named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. Why? Because you're condoning what they're doing. Okay. Right? Same thing as hailing a Jehovah's Witness. When you say, hi, guys, you're condoning them in the neighborhood. Okay? For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. Okay? He quotes the Old Testament. He never questions his salvation. We are in Christ. We are to live as if we are in Christ. If we're not, get him out of the congregation because it's only going to infect a little leaven. Leaven's the whole lump. Right? I've given this example before. I'll give it again because uh, most people don't watch the sermons. The numbers on the Bible studies are higher than the sermons, which tells me that the people watch the Bible studies and not the sermons, obviously. So I will give this because I've never given this in a uh, class here, I don't think. I did give it at Grace once, and then I gave it in one of our sermons here. San Francisco sourdough bread. Remember that one? I gave that example. San Francisco sourdough bread, they took yeast back in, I think it was 1884, okay, and they put it into a lump of bread. They put it into that lump of bread, and they, they kneaded it in, okay, and they made bread that day. But you know what they did before they kneaded that bread? That's right. They took one little piece off of the edge of that piece of bread, and they put it off to the side, and they've been using the same leaven from 1884, or right in that area, that same leaven Every single day now, it's called a starter. The next day, they make a fresh lump of dough, and they take that starter, and they put it in there, and they knead it in. And they Can you imagine the guy that forgets to cut off that starter? <laughs> oh, my. You're out of here, buddy. That's what Paul is telling us. A little leaven goes a long, long way. Hundreds of years, they're still using, actually 100-plus years, but it, it, it could go on indefinitely. It could go on and on hundreds or even thousands of years, if you had that leaven in that bread and you saved that starter forever, it would just keep making new yeast to make San Francisco sourdough bread. And you wonder why it's so good? Because they've been using that same yeast and it was a good batch and they said, we're saving this. Okay. So there you go. That's a little lesson for you. Paul says, get the leaven out. Okay. Here we go. Where were we? Um, we're still in 12. Uh, we are I think so. Yes, 12. Yeah, okay. Yes, yes, yes. All right, so I'm going to go back up here. We can either please it, meaning our sinful nature. I've said that completely, so I'm going to skip down to here. Okay, our physical mortal bodies are weak, and they must be kept in constant readiness to engage in this battle, or we will succumb. Anybody doubt that? 
I, and you have to be, and that's why I say when I'm talking to the Lord and I do it all day long, all day long, I'm talking to the Lord because if I didn't, I know that I would be screwing up 10 seconds from the time I stopped. It's just, it's in our nature. The more you talk to the Lord, the more you're in his presence, the more you just acknowledge that fill me with you. Okay. Let me think of you, the less you're going to be likely to do this. Okay. I, how many people just, they don't intend to get into sin. I, how many times do you hear about it? A pastor that was probably a pretty good pastor that ends up doing something that shouldn't have been doing, right? And all that does is bring a stain on the name. That's all it does. But he hasn't lost his salvation. He's still, the, you know, if he was truly saved in the first place, that's up between him and the Lord. But you have to be careful about the sin nature, okay? The way this occurs, it happens when we obey its lusts. The weakness of our flesh is prone to temptation, at times, it's more so than others, too, isn't it? When you're hungry, you're prone to go spend more at the uh, the store. Hence, don't let me go on days when they have olives, right? So when, when there's something that is weak in you, whatever the temptation is, is going to be doubly strong, okay? It's, it, that's the nature of it. So sometimes when we're tired, we are weak in one way, right? And what do you do? My daughter has this perfect word, which I now use because... I, 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 I'm a little hyper. You might notice that. And um, yeah. uh, my daughter is a lot like me. And she gets upset when she's hungry. And she calls it being hangry. And hangry. so she'll come into the house. And I love that word because she'll come into the house and she'll say, don't talk to me. I'm hangry. And so but until she eats something, and Hidako must know that because she's always giving me food to eat. Here, just eat something, okay? Because when you're hungry and you're high strung, you can very easily go off on the deep end. So I love that word hangry. Okay, when you're tired, it can happen. When we're hungry, we're weakened in another area. And this is the reason that we need to always be on guard and always prepared to engage in this struggle, which wars in our members. Got to do it. Okay, life application. We'll get one more person, will we? Let me see. Yeah, I, I want to make sure. I don't want to go too long and then find out that we're, yeah, we'll get one more. Um, life application. Joseph ran away from whose wife? Potiphar, very good. Uh, when she tried to seduce him, that's still a good idea today, isn't it? When sin entices, remember that its consequences can be immense. Don't let sin reign in your body, but glorify the Lord through holiness and right living. Okay, good job. 13. Pray to always be able to see the way out. Yeah, I always look for the way out because it says that he will always provide a way out. It's up to us to look for it. Absolutely. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Very good. Yeah, a little different here, but they came out with the same same ending. Same thought. Yep. Okay. Through the law is the knowledge of sin. We have been freed from the power of the law. We saw that a couple of verses ago. Thus, from the penalty that it contains. If we're free from the law, it doesn't matter. The penalty cannot be imposed. Where there is no law, there can be no penalty for an infraction because there's no infraction to make a penalty against, okay? That's the idea that we have here. We have moved from the death of Adam to life in Christ. And because this is already realized in us, Paul introduces a contrast of what not to do and what we are to do. So the first one, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. 
Our members are the parts of our body. Let our hands be free from theft. Let our tongues be free from profanity. Let our hearts be free from evil intent. And so on. Let our feet not be swift to shed blood, right? Jesus' work was that of righteousness and holiness. And because we have moved to him from Adam, how can we think to commit wickedness when it is completely contrary to our new nature, right? Why did he die on the cross? It's because of the sin of man. Why would we want to go back and say, it doesn't matter as much to me that he died for my sins than it does for me to do this wicked thing? Why would we do that? It doesn't make any sense. Now, I'm not saying that people don't fall. There are people that struggle with all kinds of sins in their life, all kinds of sins. This is natural. This happens. We come to Christ with baggage. We don't clean ourselves up to go to the doctor. We go to the doctor so he can fix us. And for some of us, it is a lifetime process. Now, everybody's different. It's very hard to say that, you know, well, you shouldn't be doing that. Obviously, you should say you shouldn't be doing that, but... You know what I'm saying? Shouldn't in the sense that, what are you doing? You know, I, I struggle with this. I struggle with, I've got this problem and I just keep struggling with it. He is not you, right? If he's doing something that is unacceptable within the church, Paul has given us guidelines. I read them to you for it. If not, help him out. You know, that's why we're here as a body of believers is to help other people out, right? Work together. Don't work against each other because when you're working against each other, that poor guy is going to go and do three times as much. It just, ah, oh, the church, I just can't go back there. And it, it, it just gets into us. I, I just want to get away from all this, okay? So we want to be free from the wickedness in our life. We want to work out what is right in Christ and not contrary to our new nature. But the second one, but, Paul says, but on the other hand, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, okay? You died, you're alive, act like it. Sin brings about death. Because we have moved from death to life, we are asked to present ourselves in a manner comparable to our new state as being alive from the dead, right? We're alive from the dead positionally in Christ. We should be acting that way because we are positionally in Christ, okay? A good example of this would be the state of marriage, right? Some of us in here got our wife sitting next to us or across the, I must smell because she sat way in the back this time, but it says, um, when we are single, we're free to date others, right? This is the world we live in. But when we get married, we are moved to move from a single mindset to that of a married person. We can choose to ignore this, but it would be contrary to the state we are in now, unless you live in 2017 where it seems like it's the most normal thing in the world but it's contrary to what you're saying when you say I want to marry this person there's a reason why you're getting married is so you can be bonded to them so it's contrary to that state this would lead to confusion in how we act and how we conduct ourselves likewise now that we are in Christ we are to act as if we are in Christ to use our members as instruments of righteousness to God right we have a new nature, we should be acting with that new nature, just like we were dating girls and now we're married and we should be with our wife. Okay, Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Let me see, what, oh yeah, uh, it gives us clear insights into the things that we can do to fulfill this new state in which we live. So give me Ephesians just a second. Two. Ephesians 5, Five. Um, 25 through 32. Husband. Yes, read it loud, though, because these people need to hear. Burke? Oh, go ahead. Okay. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, 
that he might sanctify sanctify and cleanse okay her with the washing of water by the word okay let me ask you something if we're not studying the word how can we fulfill that that's true isn't that obvious mm -hmm. he's he's telling us as he's writing this stuff down so that we can know it and then people they they think that I can just I'm okay with that I cannot understand people somebody emailed me I'll stop you right there and I'll get back into this in just a second we got eight more minutes um, somebody emailed me and he says I've just kind of fallen away and I need to know what to do what what do you recommend this is just this morning and I said the first thing yeah right here right here get in the word I said get up in the morning and read it and when you go to bed read it and when you don't feel like reading it then read it anyway I said because when you are doing something that you don't want to do because you're being obedient that's where the rewards are I just don't feel like this but I'm going to do it because I know it's the right thing I need to have this assimilated in my life if it's the first thing you read in the morning then that should at least hopefully direct your life for what you're going to do during the day and if it's the last thing you do at night then it should be filling your mind when you're sleeping I remember the last thing I did and so you're you're setting a something I remember we were at Grace one time and they had a, a pastor come in uh, he was Dave was gone somewhere and he came in and he did one of those fill-in sermons well the pastor was gone and he said there are times where you just don't want to read the Bible he says why on earth would you do that to yourself I almost got up and walked out of there I thought that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life that somebody would say you don't feel like reading the Bible I gotta tell you what I don't feel like reading the Bible a lot okay but I do it anyway. And once I'm done, I say, oh, I'm glad I did that. Yeah. It, it is, it is, I can't imagine somebody saying it's, there's a time in your life when reading the Bible isn't the right thing to do. There's always a washing of the water through the word, right? So he asked me that. I told him to read your Bible. I said, do it even when you don't want to. And then I said exactly what I said earlier. Talk to the Lord all the time. Just talk to him. The more you talk to him, the more he becomes a real presence to you. I say, if people think you're stupid, it doesn't matter you're talking to the Lord well, are you worried about offending other people or are you worried about looking crazy or are you just talk to the Lord if you can do it quietly that's fine I can't I just get talking to you know whatever but you know and I gave him a couple other points but the main one was the word read the word just read the word the more you read it the more it will assimilate into you and the more it will become a part of you read the word okay watching of the water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, mm -hmm. but that she would be holy and without blemish. Mm -hmm. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For the reason a man shall leave his hap, his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, Paul says explicitly that there at the very first pages of the Bible, the first pages of the Bible, that we were give, being given a picture of Christ. Christ and the church. A man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the wife of Christ, okay? Uh, Paul says elsewhere that I will present you as a spotless virgin 
uh, help me out with that verse, Burke. Um, uh, it is. It's Thessalonians. <laughs> but anyway, he uses the bride symbolism there once again. I am going to present you. You are betrothed to one husband, and I want to present you as a spotless virgin. That's a little bit of a misquote, but there you go. So that that is the point of this process that God is working through. From the very first pages of the Bible, he gave a woman to a man in order to make a picture of what he was going to do with his own son and the church that he would die for and that he would give you know, he'd give his life for and that he would take as his bride okay it's right there at the very beginning this is god's plan from his mind all the way back before the foundation of the world that christ would die the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world in order to procure a bride and you go to the old testament symbolism and it is there again and again and again the holy spirit the picture of the uh, servant going up with his camels his 10 camels to uh Padan uh, Maram to get a wife for Isaac, right? A bride for the son, all right? Woos him down. And then we have the same picture again, and we have it again. All of that Old Testament symbolism. Moses goes over to Midian, and there he gets a wife, right? It's a Gentile bride. He's calling her out of the world. We see the symbolism all the way through the Old Testament. Ruth and Boaz, to, or I should say Boaz and Ruth, Christ and the Gentile wife. And we see it each time. It was uh, also with Jacob and his actually it's four wives but anyway um he went up there to get a wife and he procured the wife okay this is what god is giving us a picture of so that we can see that that is how we should be positioning ourselves in him because a wife wants to be pleasing to her husband if she's a good wife right it's just it should be natural same thing with us we should want to be pleasing to our our creator our lord and our husband okay so um Let's see here. Um, where were we? Oh, Ephesians 4, 24, 25 through 32 gives us that. And we got just enough time to close. These are things that we willingly choose to do or disobey. That he just read. We willingly choose them. Uh, as Adam Clark rightly states, Satan cannot force the will and God will not. Okay? He's not going to force it. He can, but he won't. Life application and we are done. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Anybody? He will flee. He will flee from you. Absolutely right. Don't that—that that is exactly right. He will flee from you. So, um, oh, by the way, just if you never saw that sermon, Moses going to get a uh, a bride, right? You never uh, uh, saw that he went over and got that Gentile wife, and then it says that he was taking his flocks back to uh, uh, to the backside of um, Horeb, and then the flocks were never mentioned again. Remember that sermon I did? Picture of the rapture. The church is never mentioned again when he goes back to meet his people, Israel, and to redeem them and to bring them back to himself. The church is that flock. Okay, that was a picture of it. Now, his wife Zipporah made a picture at one time, and every time you see Moses with something, be assured that the rapture is pre-tribulation. The Old Testament symbolism is there. It's in um, Genesis chapter 19 with Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's right there in uh, the Moses picture. Go watch that old sermon I did on the rapture. Old Testament perfectly shows us that the rapture is going to happen pre-tribulation. We are not destined to wrath. We are destined to salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. Good stuff, okay? So, would either one of you, uh, John, would you like to pray us out tonight? If you don't want to, it's okay. No, we should If you don't want to, I'll do it. Yeah, we have plenty of volunteers here. 
Okay, just say it nice and loud and just whatever's on your heart. Don't mean to put you on the spot, but go ahead. Father, I want to thank you for this church. Uh, I watch it from a thousand miles from here every week. I, I pray for everybody in it, and I pray that everybody will be safe going home and, and being around. Uh, and I thank you for this uh, ability to come down here and visit with my church. Uh, in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay, let's uh, back this baby up and say goodbye. Now, do you watch streaming or later recorded? Mostly later. Oh, okay, so you don't get to see this, but we uh, we always have a break, and then uh, we turn around and we wave to everybody goodbye. So you get to do that today. All right. We all love you. We want you to have a wonderful week ahead. Be blessed in Christ, okay? All right. That one there, that one there. All right. <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious. So where is it? 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 Where is it?